0: please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Thank you, worship team. It's good to be back. Thank you for your prayers. I've been sick the past couple weeks, and uh, it's good to, uh, to see you again. And thank you for praying for me, caring for caring for our family. In the meantime, I would invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're picking up right where we left off. And I am going to read verses 31 and 32. Look at verses 31 and 32. Very important statement that our Lord makes regarding his work on the cross. Pivotal statement. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is a very important statement that our Lord makes about his work on the cross. When we ask the question about our Lord's atonement, one of the things that we ask, what did he accomplish? What did our Lord accomplish on the cross? And one of the things that that he accomplished is something very decisive and important regarding Satan or the figure that sometimes we call the devil. Jesus says, now, as I go to the cross, will the devil be cast out. So what does he mean? What does he mean that, that he is going to achieve victory over Satan? Well, we need to explore this. So today uh, we are going to talk about Satan. So if you're new to Capitol, welcome. <laughs> We're glad you're here. But seriously, this is, this is really important to understand uh, who Satan is, what Christ accomplished on the cross, and the victory he has achieved. So who is Satan? That's where we need to start. That's where we're going to start. Let me give you some background. This is going to take a few moments. I'm going to give you lots of cross references, lots of verses, so stay with me, okay? Uh, Satan is a created being. He is created, was created as one of the highest of the angels. So you think about all the angelic beings that God created in the beginning. Satan was one of the angelic beings that God created. His name, uh, given in Isaiah 14, means the shining one. Sometimes he's called the day star. He, He comes... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11:14, disguising himself as an angel of light. So he was vibrant. He was radiant. He was created as a beautiful creation. And I want to show you this. Keep your finger here in John 12, and I want you to turn to the left to the prophet of Ezekiel, chapter 28. Ezekiel, chapter 28. Uh, there's two Old Testament references that that many scholars think reference the devil early on. And you can remember those because they're both uh, multiples of seven. It's Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. Now, in Ezekiel 28, he's describing the king of Tyre. But it seems like he's describing him in, in typological terms or metaphorical terms. And in and, and describing the king of Tyre, beginning in verse 12, he's really describing Satan. And, and the king of Tyre is, is a type of, of Satan. So look at verse 12. Ezekiel says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onks, jasper, and sapphire. Emerald and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you you were on the holy mountain of God. Eden was basically a mountain. The rivers flowed down from the garden of Eden. So he's saying this, this angelic being of Lucifer was placed on the mountain of God. And he says, in the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. So Satan was there and enjoying fellowship with God, just as Adam enjoyed fellowship with God. And God says about him, verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Now, listen to his sin. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. In your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you. This is after Satan deceived adam and eve he says "O guardian cherub from the midst of the stones of fire your heart was proud because of your beauty you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor i cast you to the ground i exposed you before the kings to feast their eyes on you and you can turn back now to to john chapter 12 what was the principal sin of satan that you saw there in verse 17. Pride. He took his eyes off God and put his eyes on himself, and he said, look at my own beauty. Look at me. Look at how wonderful I am. I can essentially replace God. I'm on the level of God. Pride was the sin that led to Satan's disqualification. Interestingly enough, when Paul is talking about elders in 1 Timothy 3, he says don't promote a novice to the office of elder because he, he says they will become prideful and they will undergo the disqualification of Satan. What's the disqualification of Satan? Pride. He's saying if you promote a, a, a young person, uh, a new Christian to the office of elder, they will become prideful. Uh, jot this reference down, Isaiah 14, verse 12. This is what also describes Satan's fall. How you are fallen from heaven, O Day Star. That, that translation, O Day Star, is Lucifer, the shining one, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So that was Satan's sin, pride, pride. And that should be a warning to all of us, shouldn't it? When you become prideful, when you become egotistical, who are you like? Satan. Because when you become prideful, this is parenthetical, it means that you have a little view of God and a high view of yourself. The bigger your vision of God is, the more humble you will be. When you are in the presence of God, think Isaiah, are you saying, wow, look at me? Now you're saying, woe is me, because God's so great. So the way to humble yourself isn't to walk, a, walk around saying, humble myself, although you should do that, but it's to get your eyes on God. And that's what Satan failed to do, as he put his eyes on himself. Now, God creates Satan, he becomes prideful early on, And this this happened, you think about the six days of creation. The Bible's not specific on what day the angels were created. But we do know that within those first six days of creation, before Adam and Eve sinned, early on, Satan fell and the demons who fell with him. Uh, And we know this because John says in 1 John 3, 8, he says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So the devil began sinning at the very beginning. And he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So the devil interjects sin and evil into the world. And that's why the Lord Jesus ultimately came. But the point being is that the devil sinned in the beginning. So he sinned, he fell, and then he didn't want to be alone. So immediately, what does he do? He disguises himself. He appears in the form of a serpent, and he comes into the Garden of Eden in the way that he is going to overthrow the kingdom of God, is by deceiving people to reject God's authority. Think about this. The way that Satan brings about an insurrection is through deceiving people to reject God's authority over their lives. This is what Satan said to Eve, Genesis 3 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Is that a truth or a lie? It's a lie. Satan, Jesus said, is a liar and the father of lies. What God says is the truth. Remember this. What God says is the truth. Satan always advances his agenda with lies and tearing down the truth, distorting the truth. He says, you will not surely die. Now listen to what he says. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, eat of the fruit, Your eyes will be opened, and listen, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he saying? He's saying you won't need God anymore. You can function autonomously without God. You can be your own God. You can be the master of your fate. You can write your own agenda. You can live however you want. You will know the difference between good and evil isn't that the lie that Satan is still peddling? But here's the thing, if you buy it, guess whose kingdom you now join? Satan's. When you sin, when you reject God's lordship over your life, you become part of Satan's domain. He deceives you, And now you become part of the kingdom of darkness. This is what Paul says. This is very profound. This is Ephesians chapter 2, describing our sinful state. He says, verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Listen, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan says, you walked following the prince of the power of the air. He says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When you sin and you reject God's authority in your life, what does the world promise you? Freedom. Freedom. Right? No strings attached. You don't need the man over you. You don't need any authority. But what ends up happening? You become a bondservant to sin, into Satan's domain. And therefore, in order to be saved, Paul says, this is in Colossians 1:13. he says, "Christ must deliver you from the domain of darkness. Christ must be, deliver you from the domain of darkness, because sin causes you to be mastered by the devil. Uh, if you are outside the church, if you are not a Christian, you are in Satan's domain. Did you know that? It, the unbeliever is under the reign in the domain of darkness. And that's why in, in 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul says, you, know, you remember the man who was committing adultery with his mother-in-law? He says, you put him outside the church, and he says, you deliver him over to Satan. Because if, you're, if you are put outside the church then you're, you're in Satan's domain. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now the way that Satan does this, uh, the Bible says this, that Satan is not alone in his rebellion against God. There are other fallen angels that are referred to as demons, that are part of Satan's domain and kingdom. In Revelation 12.4, it says that when Satan fell from heaven, his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven with him. So think, a third of the angels that God originally created fell from heaven with Satan. But Satan is their leader. Satan is the one that basically orchestrates and governs their activities. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says that the eternal fire, think hell, the, the eternal lake of fire is prepared, he says, for the devil and his angels. So he refers to all the demons as belonging to the devil. They function and operate underneath the devil's authority. Another important verse regarding this demonic activity. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what he is saying is, is, is that in the demonic realm, not all angels or demons are equal. That there is a rank and file. You know, as a military man, I understand this. You know, you have generals and you have colonels and you have majors and you have sergeants and you have going all the way down. Y'all remember, remember C.S. Lewis, how he had uh, wormwood and screw tape and the orders go out. That's the, that's the idea, is that there is a hierarchy to Satan's domain, and that some demons take orders from higher-ranking demons. Uh, by the way, that word demon, uh, daimon, means deity, not like they are God, but they pose as God's. This is really important. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10.20. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. What he's saying is, is when a pagan offers a sacrifice to an idol or a pagan god, He's saying it's not just stone. It's not just a statue. That operating behind that pagan religion is a demonic realm. There are authorities operating behind the religions. You remember how um, the mob uses legitimate businesses as fronts for their activities. You know, they use it to launder money, the crime, the crime syndicates. And the, the business is simply a front for the activity of darkness that's going on behind it. That's how Satan uses the religions of the world. They're just fronts. Islam, Mormonism, Buddhism, Zoroasterism, Hinduism, they are all Fronts for Satan's activity. Implication When you engage in those religions, it is a spiritual experience. You ever ask yourself, why are people fooled by Islam? And those guys got on the airplanes and flew them into buildings. How do you do that? Because they were under the control of demons, demonic activity. They are operating and using the religions to deceive people away from the truth. The same is true in our country with all the systems of darkness, the abortion mills, The LBGTQ industry, Hollywood, Vegas, Harvard, the humanities department at UNC and Duke. Satan is using those. They are not neutral. There is a spiritual realm behind them. And by the way, Satan is getting more bold even in this country. You know, we pride ourselves on being secularist. In other words, there's no supernatural realm out there, people say. But recently, in the past 10, 15 years, there has been a great advance in terms of the occult, whether that be meditation, Eastern meditation, emptying the mind, people calling upon angels and spirit guides, tarot cards and oracles, psychics and mediums, interpreting signs and omens, palm readings. All of this is a direct front and a gateway into the demonic realm. All of it. So when somebody says, Hey, I'm going to do meditation, unless they're meditating on this, that's not a good thing. We're told not to clear our minds, but to renew our minds with the word of God. So Satan is advancing. With his demons, and they are at work and they are using the fronts of religion, of darkness, and the occult to deceive people. And moreover, if you are under Satan's domain, this is not true of every person under Satan's domain, but it is true of some demons still do possess people. Where a demon can take possession of the person's body and use that body how they wish. Now, a demon can never possess a born-again child of God. Because when you become a Christian, immediately, what do you become? a temple of the Holy Spirit. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's First Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So if, if God dwells in you, you cannot be possessed by Satan. You, you see these guys, these, these uh charismatic personalities, and they have what's called deliverance ministries, where they say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to cast out demons for everybody who comes. Well, listen, you don't cast demons out of Christians because there is no place for the demon to be in the soul of the Christian. That doesn't mean that the demon can't whisper lies. In your ear it doesn't mean that the, a demon can't attack you? demons do attack Christians? It doesn't mean that demons aren't waging war against us? That's what Paul says, but they cannot and will not by god's grace ever possess a believer. Now Jesus said this this is in in Matthew twelve he says, one of the dangers and, and this is when he was exercising demons and casting them out. He says one of the dangers of casting out a demon of a lost person is that if they don't trust Christ when the demon is cast out, if they stay under Satan's domain and they don't repent and believe in him, what happens to them? He says more demons come back really, really sobering. He says, this is Matthew uh, 12, 43. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there and the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. So Jesus says, look, if you, if, you, if you cast out a demon and the person doesn't believe, it gives opportunity for more demons to come back. So yes, this still is a thing. Demons still do possess people. I've encountered it. I know other." Ministers who have encountered it, it's real. Now, before we look at these verses in John 12, I want to briefly mention, I think, just in terms of thinking through this in our application, two great errors in regards to the devil. Two great errors. First, is to overestimate his power's and abilities. Some people think that you have God and basically on the same level you have the devil, that God has his powers and, it, and you basically have a dualism and Satan has his powers. And Satan's powers are essentially equal to God's powers. That's basically Gnosticism. That's not true, because there is an infinite difference between God and Satan. God is the uncreated, infinite God. Satan is a created being, and the difference between those two realities is infinite. They're not even, they're not even in the same department. God is all-powerful. God is omniscient. God is everywhere present. God is sovereign over the universe. And sometimes when I hear Christians talk about the devil, it's like they're describing God. You know? Well, Satan knows I'm doing this. Or Satan was here. Satan was there. Uh, It's kind of like that that old comedian used to say, you know, the devil made me do it. You know, the devil's making everybody do everything. But the devil, in reality, he's not everywhere at once. He's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place. And the reality is, is I doubt that you are important enough for the devil to be personally dealing with you. The devil, as Spurgeon says, is God's devil. He is under the sovereign hand of God. And by God's grace, as we will see, Christ has already achieved a magnificent great victory over Satan. And if you are a Christian, we already saw in John 10, no one, and I mean no one, not Satan himself, can take you out of Christ's hand. Nobody can touch you ultimately. He can touch your body. He cannot take your soul. Your soul is safe. Then, the second mistake that Christians make, our world world makes, is to underestimate his powers. And and many believe that Satan doesn't even exist. And and that's the biggest mistake of them all. Let me give you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is from 1976. He said, quote, Our age is one that has largely ceased to believe in the supernatural at all. This is partly due to the advance of science and its various branches. Man is regarded as the master of his own fate and the determiner of everything. It is my belief, as I have tried to show in my exposition of the apostles' warnings, that the modern world and especially the history of the present century, can only be understood in terms of the unusual activity of the devil and the principalities and powers of darkness. So we need to be aware, to be on our toes. Peter says, First Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2:11, "Do not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices." So, we need to be aware We need to understand that there is a spiritual battle taking place. There's a spiritual battle taking place right now, this morning. Here, everywhere that the Word of God is faithfully preached and the gospel is proclaimed, Satan is opposing it. So do not be surprised when you are opposed. Do not be surprised when you are seeking to advance the truth. Do not be surprised when you are showing up to teach little kids the gospel that you are hindered, that there are obstructions, that there are distractions, that there are difficulties. For our battle ultimately is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, look back at John 12. Let me explain the context about what's going on so that we can understand this statement that Jesus makes. Verse 27. Remember, some Greek uh, God-fearing God-fearers, some Greek God-fearers are in Jerusalem. Jesus has come in through the triumphal entry He is now in Jerusalem, and these Greeks have sought Jesus. They came to Philip first, then Philip brought them to Andrew, and then together they came to Jesus. And all of that is in the background. Jesus is is thinking, this is probably the connection, Jesus is thinking, I am going to the cross to purchase the salvation of these people. That's probably the connection. And he says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. So he's thinking about the agony that he will endure as he's separated as a, as, as a man from the Father as he takes on the burden of our sin on the cross. And he says, Father, save me from this hour. He's, thinking, he's dreading this, this hour, which certainly refers to the cross. But then... He reminds himself, he girds up his loins. It's almost as if he has John 3.16 tattooed on his eyeballs. He says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is the reason why I'm here, to lay down my life for sinners. And so in that vein, in that spirit, he says, Father, glorify your name. We often don't think of the cross like this, but the cross really is the apex of the glory of God. It's when God's justice and mercy meet, when the attributes of God are on full display and God redeems sinners. And it is ultimately for the display of his beautiful perfections. So yes, the cross is a display of the glory of God. He says, Father, glorify your your name. And then something really interesting happens. It says, then, then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glor, glorify it. Now, this must have been a really loud noise, a, a really loud noise, because if, if you look at the next verse, verse 29, it says that the crowd that stood there and heard it, some said that it thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now, when was the last time you heard a noise so loud that your explanation of the noise was that an angel has spoken? Probably never in your life. You think about the loudest thing that they could possibly come up with. I mean, we have, you know, uh, joint strike fighters and, 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 and bombs. We understand really loud things. But the, the loudest thing that they could probably come up with is thunder in the natural realm. But they said, some people said, it was so loud, it's like an angel spoke. It, the only explanation of this noise is, is a supernatural explanation. So uh, verse 30, Jesus says, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Later on, Jesus' disciples would remember the voice that God said that he would be glorified it. And incidentally, this is I I found this very interesting. God's voice is heard audibly three times during Jesus' ministry. Remember once. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, right when he began his prophetic ministry, once on the Mount of Transfiguration, right before he sets his face to Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many, so his priestly ministry. And then right here as he rides in as the king, as the Messiah, as he is essentially announcing his keenly ministry. So there's three offices of Christ that are seen in the New Testament, the offices of, offices of prophet, priest, and king. And at all three junctures, there is a voice heard from heaven. So all of that gives us the context for what Jesus will say about his victory over Satan. The first thing that I want you to see, what Jesus says is that Christ judges Satan's world. Christ judges Satan's world. Look at verse 31. Jesus said, now. And that word now is a very complex word. It means now. (laughs) As in now. Now is the judgment of this world. When you read the Gospel of John, one of the, the careful things that you have to observe is that John uses this word world, cosmos. He uses it different ways. So, there, there's a, a, a plethora of meanings to this world, word world. It can mean the actual earth, as in the world that God created. It can refer to the world of people, often meaning both the Jew and the the world of the Gentiles. But sometimes, and this is how Jesus is using the word here, it refers to the evil world systems which are in opposition to Christ. The the systems and the fronts that oppose God and the truth, the political powers and sinful systems and industries that stand opposed to God and the people who operate in those systems. For example, in John fourteen thirty, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of the world. He's the ruler of all these systems, all these evil entities that oppose the kingdom of God. Do you remember in Jesus' temptation... The devil took Jesus up on a high mountain, and Matthew records, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and Satan said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So all these political entities and systems that Satan controls for this reason Paul calls Satan in 2 Corinthians 4 the God of this world. He's over-operating all these systems and political groups and entities. John says in 1 John three fifteen, do not love the world. Do not love this whole thing or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's not saying don't love creation, you know? He's not saying don't love the, when you go to the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Ocean, he's not saying don't love it. That's not, because if, that's the, the earth. He's talking about this, the sinful systems that are in the world. He's saying don't love those things. Don't have your foot in that world and trying to have your foot in the kingdom of God. Don't love the world like that. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. So think about it. All the systems that were operating when Jesus was alive. Rome. Rome is is good or evil? Evil. Part of that system. Second Temple Judaism and all the laws that they had added to the old testament is it good or evil evil it's a synagogue of satan in fact jesus said to the jewish rulers john eight forty four, you are of your father the devil and your wills to do your father's desires they had turned judaism into a work of the devil because they had added all these laws and burdens to the Old Testament law in their Mishnah. So what Jesus is talking about in terms of the world is any group, system, people who reject Christ, who reject God, who reject the truth. And what he says is at the cross, there was a judgment on the world. The world thought, the Jews, Pilate, Rome, they thought that at the cross, they were judging Christ. In reality, Christ was judging them. In reality, Christ was judging them The word judgment is the Greek word krisis, K-R-I-S-I-S. It's where we get our English word crisis. The moment of judgment is the moment of crisis. When Christ died on the cross, there was a declaration, there was a line in the sand, there was a pronouncement of judgment that. All who oppose Christ will one day be judged, and that judgment is sure and fixed. So there is a sense. Now, notice that word now. Now is the judgment. If you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you are judged now. Yes, you will be judged in the future, but you are judged now as evil. All who oppose the name of God, all who oppose the name of Christ in the universities, in the Ivy Leagues, on the Hollywood sets, all are judged now. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is presently revealed? to all those who reject the worship of the triune God. That's why John says, jot down these verses, John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You are judged now if you don't believe. If you oppose yourself to God, you are judged because, John says, whoever does not believe is condemned already he has not believed in the name of the only son of god and then he says john 3:19 this is the judgment this is the crisis the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil so people think, when, they, when you talk to somebody and they say, I reject the Lord on this basis, they think that they are standing over Christ and casting judgment on Christ. In reality, they are pronouncing their own judgment because Christ is casting judgment on them. Just in a lighthearted way, on the way in this morning, uh, Charles turned on a Johnny Cash song. And I was talking to the girls, and I told the girls, I said, uh, what you think about Johnny Cash says much less about Johnny Cash and more about you. Because Johnny Cash is a legend. <laughs> and so your dislike of Johnny Cash doesn't say something about Johnny Cash, it says something about you. <laughs> in, in, in an infinite way, that's Christ. What you think about Christ doesn't say something about Christ. It says something about you. And if you don't trust in Christ, John says, you're judged already. Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. So, very important, very important. You've got to learn to see things with spiritual eyes. Paul said in Galatians 6, I have been crucified to the world, and the world to me. I I don't need the systems of Satan. I don't need the things that oppose God. I don't need the movies that blaspheme his name. I don't need the people that mock him. I've crucified myself to those things. Those things are judged, and I'm heading forward towards the light. So The world of Satan has already been judged. And then secondly, Christ cast Satan out. And this is something I think that modern evangelicals have not understood, do not understand, but there has already been achieved a great victory over Satan. Look at that second phrase in verse 31. Now. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? Now, Jesus is, of course, talking about what occurs at the cross. The context tells us this. The next verse, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's talking about the cross So he's saying, at the cross, there is a sense where Satan was cast out. Let me explain what sense that is. Throughout Jesus' ministry, one of the things that he did is he cast out demons everywhere he went. Even when he sent out the 72 in Luke 10, they came back to him and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus' response to them, this is Luke 10, 18, is, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So he's picturing and foreshadowing that the casting out of demons is foreshadowing what will happen at the cross, that Satan will be cast out of heaven. Satan will be cast out of heaven. What's Satan doing in heaven? What was Satan doing in heaven? He doesn't belong in heaven. What Satan would do in heaven up into the point of the cross is he would go into the heavenly court and he would announce accusations against the saints that the Lord had forgiven. He says, how can you forgive that gal? They are vile. How can you forgive them? Because you remember, Paul says in Romans 3 something important. He says, the blood of bulls and goats never actually atoned for sin. When Christ died on the cross, he died for all the saints of the past, all of them, And until that happened, Satan had grounds of accusation. And he would go into heaven, and he would be in the throne room, and he would say, God, how can you defend that person? How can you forgive that person? That person is a sinner. They have rebelled. They have committed adultery. They have committed murder, and yet you forgive them. How can you forgive them? And Jesus died to take away the accusation. I want you to see this. We're getting short on time, but turn to Revelation 12. Revelation 12. I'm going to wade where many fear to go. And I'm going to explain this from a 30,000 foot view very quickly because you need to understand this. The woman in Revelation 12 represents the people of God, the woman represents the, the Jewish saints in the Old Covenant, and it represents the New Covenant saints, the church in the New Covenant. Verse 1 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. That's the, the people of God of the old covenant. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. So this is the beginning of time when Satan deceives the demons and cast them down to earth and the dragon stood before the woman so the 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 satan has opposed the people of god throughout the the history of redemption throughout all of history satan has opposed the people of god and the people of god through the hebrews through the jewish line read Matthew's genealogy, came the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, through the people of God comes the Messiah. And that's what it means when it says, the, the, uh, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Christ is come as a man, and it says, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? Obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's in reference to the ascension, when, where now Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. Now the woman, verse 6, refers to the people of God that are here, that are still left. That's you and me. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now this is the picture of what happened while Christ was on the cross. Verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Again, when did this happen? At the cross. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, what does that sound like? Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, listen, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. There's no room for accusation. And they, this is us, have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word and their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. You conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Because the blood takes away his accusations. So when you put your faith in Christ, all of your sins are cleansed. And God imparts to you, declares to you, a righteousness that is not your own, a righteousness of Christ. So that you stand before God as pure as snow, as righteous as Christ himself. And so the accusation of Satan is taken away. So there's no room for Satan anymore in heaven. He's been thrown down. All the demons. That's what Jesus says. Now Satan cast out. So what is Satan doing now? Verse, 13, verse 12, he says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you will dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He knows that his time is short. He's trying to wreck as much havoc as he can during this period, but his time is short, and when will he ultimately be defeated? When the Lord Jesus comes back, he will throw Satan and his demons, Matthew 24, into the lake of fire, where they will be forever and ever. One last thing I want you to see, and that's Christ's raid on Satan's domain, Christ raids Satan's domain, you could say, and that's in verse 32. Jesus says, at that moment, when I am lifted up from the earth, he says, I will draw all people to myself. What he's talking about is Satan's dominion over the nations. Think about this. In the Old Covenant, how many nations did God operate with and through? One. Now you had people from other nations saved. You think about Naaman, you think about Ruth, you think about Nineveh. You have other people, right? But those are exceptions to the rule. the The rule is is that the nations. In the old covenant are in darkness. They worship false gods. They worship the Asheroth. They worship Dagon. They worship, you know, the, the, the pantheon of gods in ancient Egypt. They they worship these false gods that are controlled by demons and Satan. The nations were in darkness. But when Christ died on the cross, he accomplished the salvation. Of a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's Revelation 5 9. And the stronghold that Satan had over the nations was broken at the cross. It was broken at the cross. And that's why Jesus says in the Great Commission, Where does he say the disciples are to go? I give you all authority. Go and make disciples. Where? Of all the nations. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Because at the cross, he accomplished the salvation of a vast number of people. And Jesus says this. Notice this word draw in verse 32. That word is the same word that you would describe pulling a bucket up in a well. How much power does the bucket exert to get up to the top of the well? None. None. What Jesus is saying here is, I will bring in, I will draw the people, all the people and he doesn't mean everybody without exception. He means everybody without distinction, everybody from different nations that, I, that I'm redeeming. I will bring those people in, just like a big tug of war, where you start pulling it back. I will certainly bring in the nations. And incidentally, when will Christ return? He says, when Matthew 24, when all the nations have heard. When the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, then I will return, because He has achieved the salvation of the nations, the people from every tribe, tongue, and people. So, when you are engaged in evangelism, when we are talking about missions, when we're talking about the gospel going forth, we are talking about Christ raiding Satan's domain, raiding the nations that Satan controlled because he has redeemed a people for his name from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we stand on the victory of Christ. This is what Christ has already accomplished, and we are simply standing kind of in in between the 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 period where, where Christ has achieved this victory and when he will put Satan to bed once and for all. The victory has already been achieved. Grace be to God. And Satan has already been defeated. But we await the day when he will be defeated forever and ever. And we await the day for the gospel to go forth to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the victory that your Son achieved at the cross, that every accusation has been taken away to those who are under the blood of the Lamb. And we pray, Lord, that those who haven't put their faith in Christ would trust Christ, look to him in faith, so they too would be clothed in the precious blood and righteousness of the lord jesus christ we thank you lord for your victory over this world your victory over satan casting him out of heaven we thank you lord that you are going forth through the gospel to the nations drawing the nations to yourself we thank you for these things all for your honor and your glory in christ's name Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.